everyone. Thanks for listening to the Mount Sinai Health Partners podcast. This is Rob Field, CMO for Population Health. Um, I'm sorry it's been a while since we've put out a podcast. Uh, we've had obviously a lot going on in the city uh, over the spring and early summer. And um, I, just before we really got into the thick of it with COVID, or actually, I guess, actually during the beginnings of it, I was able to record a podcast with a friend and colleague, Mark Gwynn, who is a physician and the president of the uh, UNC Alliance, um, which is the network for UNC Chapel Hill. Uh, Mark and I have collaborated and and discussed value-based care for several years now and uh, have appreciated his insight. And back in April, uh, interestingly enough, we had a conversation that we'll listen to here in just a few moments. Obviously, now at the beginning of August here officially, um, things have changed quite a bit where the cases in North Carolina uh, at this point are outnumber those in New York, uh, at least in the current state, and and things have kind of flipped. But um, I know that the work that they put in place early this spring, I'm, I'm sure, is helping serve their patients in the best possible way. And, and to some degree, there's it's interesting, actually, to think back about this conversation just a few months ago and how the world has changed. So uh, please enjoy the conversation. It is was recorded over Zoom. So again, uh, I apologize for the slight uh, differences in audio quality from what we try to put out normally. But um, I think the information is great and appreciate you listening. Today, I'm talking to a friend and colleague from UNC, uh, Dr. Mark Glenn, and um, Mark, I really appreciate you joining us. That's a real, that's a real pleasure, Rob. Um, this is a, it's, a, it's certainly an interesting time for us to be doing the work uh, that I know we both care deeply about, uh, so it's a real pleasure to, to talk with you for a little bit about this. No, thank you for your time. I know how busy things are um, with, for, for everyone, but including large health systems that are trying to plan for what is happening and what may come in the future. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your role and before COVID, what UNC was thinking in the world of value and pop health, kind of just globally, um, what you guys were, how you were, you were approaching the problem that you were dealing with? Yeah, certainly. Thanks. Um, so I, um, I'm, a, I'm a family uh, doc by training uh, and um, currently the, the president and executive medical director of UNC Health Alliance, which is the organization that we stood up at UNC Health to um, lead us uh, down the path of, of value and, and population management. And over the past couple of years, we've grown really significantly. I mean, we are committed to, to value, um, both in terms of um, value-based contracts uh, and payment models, uh, we've built a, a clinically integrated network that is statewide now uh, of over 6,000 providers across the state of North Carolina, uh, including our, our 11 hospitals, um, home health agencies, skilled nursing facilities. So it truly is an integrated network that we spend quite a bit of time uh, crafting in a way uh, that we think really positions us well uh, to do this work. Um, we've developed some really good payer partnerships, uh, both through CMS, but also uh, with um, state and national commercial uh, payers, as you probably know and have heard quite a bit about, uh, our partnership with Blue Cross Blue Shield uh, and the efforts that they have made in, uh, in catalyzing value-based care and payment models has been pretty transformative in North Carolina. Um, and we're also really looking forward to Medicaid transformation uh, over the next couple of years. Uh, we blended both our clinically integrated network with our pop health, uh, population health services organization, 
uh, and so that we can really land not just the payment models in the network, but uh, the on-the-ground work that needs to happen uh, to really change the trajectory of how our, um, our populations and, and patients' uh, outcomes uh, are. And, and so we, we've, we've done quite a bit of work uh, looking at data and analytics and um, uh, good performance reporting. And, you know, I've, I've stolen a phrase from you uh, that if all we're doing is uh, creating more chase lists, then, then we're failing. And, and we've really taken that to heart. Um, so our goal is to really support our providers in a, in a way uh, that is data-driven, that's action-oriented, um, and also shifting into some of the real true drivers uh, of poor health outcomes, um, whether that's social determinants of health, financial health, uh, others, and, and really trying to solve those, those hard problems. Uh, so we spent five years building uh, uh, the network, building the services uh, and the teams, uh, which has quite honestly been pretty interesting to see how we have um, uh, shifted that in the last five weeks uh, to address the COVID pandemic, which in essence is both a public health um, crisis, but also a population health crisis. Uh, and it's been, I, I, really, we had the infrastructure to pivot and, and address the problem as best as we could, I think. Mark, your network has, it's similar to ours in that you have both employed and independent physicians in your network. Uh, do you have a off the top of your head, you know, roughly like ratios, is it like three quarters employed or by a quarter independent or how does that, how does that work out for you guys? Yeah, that's, a, that's almost exactly right. Um, so um, two thirds of our network is uh, employed and, and one third is independent and about the same ratio of specialists to primary care. I think we're fortunate that we've had a pretty large primary care footprint across North Carolina and that's what we've been doing for the past several decades. Uh, so it's been a, it's been an interesting um, journey uh, to engage our independent providers across uh, across the state. You know, there, as you know well, there are just some fundamentally different barriers uh, to care and, and different needs of practices. And um, it, uh, I think we've uh, we spent significant try time trying to understand that uh, and adapt our services in a way that makes sense. Yeah. And just following along before before we discuss the effects of COVID, I hear as much about North Carolina healthcare in New York uh, as I did when I was living there for 18 years. Uh, there's, as you mentioned, there's a ton of stuff going on, uh, both in terms of Medicaid reform and some of the work that Blue Cross is doing pretty aggressively in the market to move towards value. How do you, how do you feel like that's been received by your physicians? Um, and, and I imagine it may be slightly different from the independent docs versus the employed docs. But I wonder if you can comment a little bit about how it's being received. Yeah, I think um, as you're as you're alluding to it, I think it's been uh, both unsettling uh, and uh, hopeful, uh, and that's that's what we hear from from uh, providers. That you know, I fundamentally believe that the, the work we're doing around population management is that's that, that's good medicine. Uh, you know, I mean, really focusing on the outcomes, especially of uh, folks uh, that are the most underserved. Um, that's why we all got into this. And, and as I talk to doctors across the state, and that's what I hear, uh, they are almost grateful that even though it's uncertain, even though payment models change, um, and they don't, and some uh, don't know exactly how to navigate this, um, they're hopeful uh, that this is the right direction. Uh, so as we look forward, especially over the next three years or so, there are some estimates that 70% of healthcare dollars in North Carolina will flow through alternative payment models. That is fundamental foundational change and the type of scale that we need to actually change how we deliver care. 
care, not just pay for care. Um, so I'm, I'm hearing both trepidation uh, and and optimism, uh, and that, that's actually a that I think that's where innovation happens, right? <laughs> yeah, no, right. I mean, and and I will, you know, we'll kind of get to it in the conversation, but I think even with all the terrible things that COVID has brought, there's actually innovation and and silver linings in that as well for the same reason. And the the anxiety and the sense of urgency that change brings, good or bad, um, it does. It's right. It's where innovation seems to happen. So now you're doing you're doing all the stuff. You're trying to adapt to the payer market, to the state policy markets, and then COVID hit. Um, you know, obviously we have our experience in New York, but you guys are a huge system across the entire state. How, how did you guys first start um, reacting to it, or start to think about it from at least on the pop health side? Yeah, I think um, the. Uh, it's interesting how many analogies have been made to preparing um, for this and, and preparing for battle. Uh, and, and I know that, and, and my heart has gone out to both you and all of your colleagues in, in uh, New York. Uh, you have been certainly uh, the tip of the spear and, and <clears throat> have been managing this crisis differently than many others in the, in the country. And we're deeply appreciative of all the work that you all have done. Um, I think we approach this in, in two fundamental ways. One, uh, early on was to um, organize, find the right partners within our system uh, that we could align with really quickly and efficiently and pivot uh, with effectively. Um, and strategically uh, had two main goals. One was to uh, try and keep patients that were either at risk for COVID or likely to have COVID um, uh, out of our typical care centers, whether it was our ambulatory care centers, emergency departments or hospitals. Uh, and then secondly, uh, treat as much in place as possible. Um, those were our two core strategies. And uh, so we, we uh, built um, call centers uh, to, re to identify patients that were at risk. Um, uh, we stood up with, in partnership with our uh, clinical care, with our, care, our, our clinical entities, um, what we call respiratory diagnostic centers to both test and treat outside of our standard ambulatory centers. Um, and then stood up several uh, in-home management uh, programs uh, that, quite honestly, we've been wanting to do for a while and had piloted. Um, this was a, this was an opportunity right. to scale them uh, effectively. Right. So those are the two really core strategies early on: uh, keep folks uh, out of our typical care centers as much as possible and care in place. How is the the availability of testing across the state for you guys? Um, inadequate. Um, just yeah. like most other places, you know, it, interestingly, uh, UNC Health developed uh, our own uh, test, which was really fantastic. It was a rapid turnaround, um, initially a turnaround time of about four to 24 hours. That was really effective. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, the rate limiting uh, factor was was uh, supplies, you know, PPE, yeah. um, I mean, so, sorry, swabs and reagents. Um, and certainly, uh, PPE was a factor both in our clinics yeah. and in the in the testing centers. So, um, very similar to to others. Uh, uh, you know, early on, we had a capacity in one of our centers of about 100 tests a day, and um, that's helpful but not adequate. Yeah, that's been scaled it significantly. Seems like, yeah, no, exactly. Uh, it seems like supply chain has come up as a recurrent theme for all sorts of things. You don't realize that you mentioned swabs and reagents. We're finding the same things. It, it, you know, even if you have the kits, there's all these other peripherals 
that start hitting different parts of the supply chain, which have been an interesting uh, problem, an unexpected problem, I think, for a lot of folks. Um, have you, how has the state helped in that regard, either with PPE or testing supply chain or anything like that? It, it, you know, it, it seems like so much of this has been to some degree relegated to the states to manage. Um, and so I'm curious how North Carolina has helped or not or where you guys are out there. Yeah, I, I think the state has actually done a really um, effective job of leading through through this crisis. Um, uh, Secretary Mandy Cohen, who uh, I'm sure you know and remember, um, has been actively present. Um, uh, Governor Cooper, uh, I think, acted quickly and effectively early on uh, with instituting uh, policy change uh, uh, for um, uh, stay-at-home uh, orders, et cetera. And then that's been really effective from a from a supply chain standpoint, the state was the first to start testing. Uh, you know, they had limited capacity and uh, quickly made that known, uh, and that really allowed for some innovation from the healthcare systems uh, and from vendors, lab core quest, et cetera. So I think collectively between the state, between the healthcare systems and um, and commercial uh, uh, labs, it's been actually pretty effective uh, scaling. Good. The state has really stepped in more recently over the past uh, two, two and a half weeks in our congregate living facilities, which is where, at least in North Carolina, that's where we're seeing the most significant outbreaks uh, and the most concerning outbreaks, to be blunt. Uh, and the mm -hmm. state, both um, uh, uh, from a PPE supply standpoint, testing standpoint, and then activating the local county health departments and the medical leadership within the health departments have really uh, taken lead in helping manage through the, the congregate living crisis. Yeah, I and mean, I think when you look at this, it's uh, it's sort of a perfect storm of the demographic that's most at risk in close facilities where, you know, it's sort of like a microcosm of New York. It's hyperdent in a, you know, closed-in area with a whole host of vulnerable folks and, and those, uh, whether it's assisted living, SNF, rehab, et cetera, it's, that's been a huge problem. And we've had similar issues here in New York with inadequate PPE and testing, et cetera. So, um, yeah, that's a, it's a huge priority. I'm glad they've been aggressive about that. Um, the docs themselves, and you mentioned, I, for all the obvious reasons, the, the priority to do proactive outreach to folks at home, vulnerable populations at home, and treat in place wherever possible. The converse of that is that I'm sure you had to reimagine both on the employed and then the independents for themselves to some degree, reimagine their delivery system as well, because now their visits have greatly reduced. Uh, um, I imagine telemedicine has been part of that strategy, easier for some than others. Can you talk a little bit about that and maybe some of the differences of being an employed physician, perhaps with some infrastructure that might be available to you, and, and then also maybe how your independents are having to navigate those same waters? Yeah, virtual virtual care has, has really moved to the center of our care model, uh, for sure, just like I'm sure uh, your network uh, and, and many others across the country. You know, it was really interesting. Um, about five weeks ago, you know, we've been working on virtual health platforms for a long time, as, as most folks have. Um, it's remarkable uh, how quickly we overcame the barriers that have been in place for two years. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. Um, literally in a weekend. <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. Um, so we had all the relevant uh, stakeholders uh, over a weekend uh, in uh, the same place, and, and we stood up a, a virtual care clinic uh, in 48 hours. 
launched it uh, and scaled it within two weeks. It was really, really remarkable. Um, and both the platform uh, was important to stand up, but also then training, as you as you alluded to. It's just not a it's not a, a modality that our providers are are used to or comfortable with. Um, you know, the family doc. I've been providing virtual health my entire career. You know, that's the seven o'clock right. phone call <laughs> right, <laughs> when you're right. looking through your labs from the day, right? I mean, that's virtual that's health. Right. Um, and, but so training all of our docs has been uh, has been uh, uh, interesting, and it's been hard to be honest. Um, we've rolled out for our employed network. Uh, provisioned every provider uh, on our virtual health platform and we're an Epic shop. So we really utilized Epic at this point. Um, uh, and it's taken out the elbow support uh, to be comfortable. Um, as I'm sure you've experienced, not everything, uh, not every visit that was intended to be a video visit, it ends up in a video visit. You know, our conversion rate right. to telephone is, is significant. Um, and there's been a rapid response from uh, our commercial payers on this front too, uh, to, to reduce the most significant barrier in terms of reimbursement and parity. Um, and we have had significant signals from each of the payers that they intend to continue this after COVID. And that is really reassuring and quite honestly gives us the motivation um, yep. to continue investing in this right now. You know, our independent provider network um, was pretty variable uh, early on. We, uh, we knew that um, our independent providers would struggle, um, even with a 50, 40, 30% reduction in volume, um, they were, their cash flow was really difficult. Uh, so mm -hmm. we started interfacing with them on a daily basis through WebExes uh, to uh, guide through some of the payment models uh, and, mm -hmm. and um, uh, changes that were made around virtual health, uh, some, of the, some of the vendors that were available to provide a platform for virtual health um, and really try to outline what their options were. Uh, and um, very interestingly, all but five practices in our network had some virtual platform option within wow. within the first 10 days um, of, of the response. It was pretty That's impressive wonderful. response. Yeah. Yeah. I think we'll see how, how many practices and providers in the independent network continue uh, after mm -hmm. COVID. We'll see. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you think about, I mean, I remember running my independent practice, you know, years ago and trying to think about all the investment in brick and mortar and all that stuff. And I think similarly, you know, we've had a certainly about two thirds of our docs that have been able to stand up a, a televisit platform and get that going. But for the most part, the number of visits has reduced to roughly a quarter to a third. Uh, of their normal volume and so they have all this brick and mortar which certainly in new york is even more acute because the rent per square inch even is pretty yeah. is so expensive um but i think i don't know what your impression has been but mine has been that a lot of the physicians have really liked it and have really learned some things for example doing a video visit with a patient where then all of a sudden you're doing the family member that's in the background or you see their mm -hmm. their homes and what their living situation is like. Have you heard any anecdotes like that from, from your doc? I have actually. The, the, the first uh, scenario you mentioned, we've heard repeatedly. Mm -hmm. um, the, the child or the, the partner or right. the, the um, elder uh, adult living in the house, they'll just hand the phone over to them. <laughs> right. Uh, uh, it, yeah. it's, uh, it's true family, family-based care. It's true family medicine, um, right. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that's been really, it's been really interesting. You know, what's also, what also has been interesting is to, um, 
I think folks who are patients who are interfacing with us from their home when they're isolated and anxious and scared and unsure of what's happening or what's about to happen, um, the anecdotes that I'm hearing from folks is they're more open uh, or more willing to open up about those anxieties. Uh, and that's actually really allowed us to build in um, a social work uh, LCSW platform to, to help manage anxiety, depression, and others. And that's been a real win, I think, honestly. Um, to your point, an insight into someone's house and their living situation, man, it's just so important for us to fully understand uh, patients' complete health. Um, and it does. It reminds me of home visits from many years ago. Yeah. You know, the more we can get into, into patients' real worlds, the better off uh, I think we can, pro the better care we can provide overall. Yeah, no, there's no doubt. Well, speaking of that, in our last couple minutes, if, if you can talk a little bit about, you mentioned a few innovations already. That I think we all hope some of those will stick, um, crisis or not. But can you... Can you talk a little bit about the silver linings out of this? Um, you know, we, I think there's enough negativity about the morbidity and mortality rates and things like that. But if you can talk a little bit about, besides maybe telemedicine or even nuances of that, but other things that you that you hope stick at the end of this that have come out of the innovation and the crisis. Yeah, the um, some of this technology based, I think, and then others, um, some other innovations are around uh, how how we think as a as a care delivery system. Um, so from a technological standpoint, and I guess this is within the, the umbrella of virtual care, but we started using uh, some chatbot um, technology. Uh, so for example, uh, patients that came to our respiratory diagnostic centers and were tested, uh, we started following on a daily basis with chat technology um, to uh, both <clears throat> stay in touch, um, deliver results of tests, but also monitor symptoms. And if there were any escalating symptoms, uh, patients fell into a red, yellow, green um, symptom management um, assessment. And, and then we had a team of nurses uh, that called patients back when, they, when their symptoms started progressing. Um, and that was really effective at two things. One, providing uh, some security uh, uh, and help alleviate some anxiety among patients, but also help manage them at home until they really needed to be seen. And um, our referral to the emergency department was really, really low. It was a really low mm -hmm. rate. Um, so from a pop health standpoint, that's identifying uh, the right patient for the right level of service. Uh, and right. and um, as a core strategy, I think is really effective. Um, <clears throat> how we've implemented it, both um, the, uh, identifying any, <clears throat> excuse me, any ISD barriers, but also uh, um, real patient uh, barriers and, and fine tuning this is a real strategy, I think, moving forward. So I think this can really allow us to um, expand our behavioral health integration uh, across our primary care uh, footprint, really look at post-procedural care um, differently and better. And I know there's some uh, reasonable research uh, and, and some data to support that. So how we scale um, some of that technology, which is patient-facing uh, and interactive um, in a way that is effective, I think is a, is a core strategy for us moving forward. Um, I know that you all have um, have worked uh, within hospital to home for for several years now. It's been really effective. And it's something that we wanted to do now for a while, and so we're pursuing that um, both as a COVID surge um, uh, effort, but also uh, ongoing. And uh, this is a real opportunity for us to implement hospital to home uh, uh, virtually. And so I'm I'm excited yeah. about that. I think that's a real value 
based approach to, to care. Um, you know, what's also interesting is just the whole, the entire spectrum of home-based care um, has come into light as a, as a key strategy. You know, we've, we've had different um, uh, aspects of home-based care for a while now, um, whether it's home health or peer support, uh, community health workers. You know, we learned from you many years ago about the role of community paramedicine uh, and have, have really uh, implemented that across several of our, our areas. Uh, that's becoming a core uh, of, of how we work now. And that, that is likely to be the chassis even for a virtual hospital, for example. Um, so it's just a different way of, of thinking about delivering care on a chassis of um, community and home-based care um, and coordinating in a way that's new and different. Um, we've done quite a bit of work over the past couple of years integrating with community agencies um, around food insecurity, housing insecurity, and others. Uh, and that has become increasingly important over the past five weeks to six weeks for us. Exactly. And those relationships are stronger now than they've been before. Um, and I think coming out of this, uh, we'll be able to leverage those relationships better, differently. On the payer side, I've been, I've, honestly, I've been really impressed with how mm -hmm. our payers have responded to our needs, um, uh, even um, in finding food sources and helping to pay for food sources for uh, folks that are at risk across our network. And that's reassuring to me and, uh, and a silver lining if we can continue that level of conversation with our payers to invest in the right um, uh, the right needs for our patients. Uh, that's uh, that's impressive, and I think something we can move forward with. Yeah, it sounds amazing, Mark. I really appreciate your time. I know you're crazy busy. You guys are doing really awesome things down there. So uh, always continue to be motivated, inspired by what you guys are doing, and hope to talk to you in person too soon, uh, instead of just over Zoom here. Uh, you too, Rob. Uh, I've always appreciated our, our uh, friendship and partnership. We've learned a lot from you over the years. Um, please know that uh, uh, we in North Carolina are sending every possible uh, positive vibe, energy, prayers uh, to you and your colleagues in New York and have been uh, for quite a while. So thank you for everything that you and your colleagues are doing. Um, uh, the work is impactful and meaningful, and we, we appreciate it. Well, thank you. And thanks, everyone, for listening. If you have ideas for future podcasts, um, please email me at robert.field at mountsinai.org. Um, thank you very much. Mm -hmm.